this morning. We'll go to a couple other places in Scripture, but we're going to start there in the book of Hebrews. We have been studying in Sunday school the topic of understanding our enemy. have had three lessons so far on just, just Satan and his mindset and the way that he operates. Uh, we looked at the idea of his... Uh, his um, Targets, what is he after, what does he try to attack, how does he try to attack those things in our first week of lessons. Then we looked at his talk. We looked at the theology that Satan promotes um, and how it is contrasted with the Word of God and what is true. Then we saw last week Satan's tactics and just the way that he operates. And we looked at how he has an army that is assisting him. And we looked at how he has different methods of temptation that he brings into the life of individuals. And he, um, we saw how he has an adversary and that we are his adversary and that we're supposed to be fighting against his attacks and standing for the Lord and seeing victory in our lives. Today we're going to look at the idea of Satan's timeline. Um, what, what, what is his history? What is he doing now? And where is he headed um, in the future? I uh, heard a sermon years ago, uh, probably about 20 years ago, on dealing with guilt. And there's something the preacher said that stuck with me all this time. Never forget this statement he made. But he said, whenever the devil reminds you of your past, just remind him of his future. Um, and uh, we understand the Bible. We can see the whole story and see how things turn out. And that's a great benefit to us. So we're going to be looking at Satan's timeline um, today. Now, according to the schedule I gave you, uh, when we started this series, this was going to be be uh, the last lesson in this series, but yet last week as I was praying about it and looking to the end of the, end of the series here, Lord laid on my heart one more message to deal with this, and we're going to talk next week about how as Christians we can have victory over Satan and really focus on that in the lesson next week. It'll be a little bit different of a lesson because it's actually a message that I preached about three years ago at another church that the Lord laid on my heart, and we're going to look at that, kind of blend the two. I don't usually preach a preaching style in Sunday school, but it's kind of going to be a blend of that. So next week, I think you will enjoy uh, that message. It's kind of a fun uh, title. I'll give it to you now. The title of the message is Go Ahead and Bring a Gun to a Knife Fight. Go ahead and bring a gun to a knife fight. And that is uh, our, our lesson for next week as us as Christians seeing victory in our lives over Satan's attack. But for this week, we're going to look at the idea of Satan's timeline. We've been looking um, here and seeing how... Um, how we understand our enemy kind of from a military perspective. Now, one of the things in military that's a great concern are all of the unknowns, not knowing. If, if we had perfect knowledge before we entered a situation, there's things we would do differently, how things turn out in the end. Will the enemy have things we don't know about? Will all the plans we have made end in defeat or victory? History would be very different if generals knew the outcomes before they fought the battles. If they could, you pick any battle and any general in any part of history. If you gave him the end of the battle before the battle started, he would have done things differently, and and history would be completely different. Nations would have uh, formed that haven't formed. Uh, nations would have grown. Empires would have lasted. Things would have fallen. If you would have had that information ahead of time, you come into the battle with a, a lot greater strategy and ability to get the victory. This type of intel would be invaluable in a, uh, in a military context. You know, there are a few battles in history where this did take place, where the, uh, where the army knew the end result before the battle happened. Uh, one of these was brought up in a message recently, and that's Gideon. 
Gideon going into battle. He was going to battle. He had his army all ready to go, 300 men. They had their weapons of war, their pitchers and their uh, trumpets and their lamps. And uh, Gideon was a little bit nervous because the enemy force they were going against was 135,000 soldiers. And he was pretty sure he knew how that battle was going to end. Um, 300, 135,000. We don't even need to bring weapons because it doesn't matter anyway. Um, he was concerned about that. And God was very gracious and patient with Gideon, gave him lots of uh, affirmations of his will will in Gideon's life. And so Gideon just told God, I, I don't know about this thing and this battle going on. And God said, well, go down to the enemy camp. Take your armor with you. Take your, take your um, servant with you. You guys go down there and you go just go down to the edge of the camp. When they get down there, they hear some soldiers discussing a dream that one of them had. And the one soldier told the other, I had this dream where this, uh, this barley loaf, this piece of bread came rolling off the hill and, and it just crushed our tent, just, just made it flat. And the other guy said, oh, that's, that's Gideon. Gideon's just going to come destroy the army tomorrow. And that gave Gideon a lot of, uh, a lot of encouragement to go into battle because he knew how the battle was going to turn out. Another instance of this was the story, again, we heard recently of Jericho. Joshua and the battle of Jericho. Joshua, again, the children of Israel, go. how are things going to turn out? What's the battle going to look like? They sent some spies into the land. Go ahead and scope it out. Tell us, tell us what the enemy's like. Let's get that intelligence. How strong are they? How confident are they? What are their battlements like? How many soldiers do they have? What kind of weapons do they use? These spies go in, and we know they go to uh, Rahab's house, and she hides them from the king's soldiers. And afterwards, they're interviewing Rahab and trying to get this information. And this is what Rahab said to them. They, she said... I know, and speaking for the people of Jericho, I know that the Lord hath given you the land, and that your terror is fallen upon us, and that all of the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. Battle hadn't even started yet, and the, the enemy said, I know you won already. And the confidence that they gave Joshua and the children of Israel to go into battle, even to the point where when they, when they lost the battle, they were shocked. Like, what happened? And it was because there was sin in the camp. But they went into the battle knowing how it was going to turn out. We, have, we see in these instances that the enemy was defeated before the battle even began. When I was a young teen, um, I enjoyed reading. I did a lot of reading and um, some, some Bible biography, but also some entertainment style reading. And one thing I enjoyed reading for entertainment was the Hardy Boys mystery books. I enjoyed reading those as a young teen. And there's something consistent about all of the Hardy Boys uh, mystery books. When you open the first or second page, what do you see, Eli? There's a picture, and the picture is um, of something in the middle of the story, and it's always something where there is, there's definite danger, things are going catastrophically wrong, and there's a caption on the picture that says, this is going to happen, and they don't know what they're going to do. I remember one, I don't know which book it was, but one picture that stuck in my mind was a picture of a car going off the side of a cliff in a thunderstorm, and there's one of them hanging onto a root, and he's out of reach of his brother's hands. Say, what's going to happen? Oh no, this could be, could be the end. And there was more than once that I went ahead and went to the last chapter and made sure, okay, they're still around. Joe and Frank, they both made it out. They're home with their dad. Okay, everything turns out okay in the end. As Christians, we have the last chapter. And uh, we, we can go read the end of the book and we can see how everything turns out. Uh, there was, uh, I believe it was a song I heard a long time ago, but the song said, in the, in the song there's a line that said, I've read the book and we win. Um, I got to see the last chapter, got to see how the story turned out. Uh, Spoil alert, when it comes to history, it ends up with God victorious. No matter how bleak things look right now, we get to spend forever with Jesus, and our adversary, the devil, spends forever in a lake of fire. 
He can't stop it. He can't prevent it. He can't change it. That's the way things are going to end up. So today we're going to look at Satan's timeline, see where he came from, where he is, and where he is going. Hebrews chapter 2, I had you turn there. Verse number... Which number are we on? Verse number 14. 14 and 15. Hebrews chapter 2, verse number 14 and 15. We'll read it and then pray and get into the lesson today. For as much then, Hebrews 2, 14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that hath the power over de- death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Let's open with a prayer. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the victory that we have through Christ that he won uh, for us, that we get to enjoy as, as Christians, Lord. Pray you'd help us as we continue this study to uh, let this make an impact in our lives, that we can see our enemy and, uh, Lord, the opposition he's trying to bring into our lives, but we can also see victory through the power of Christ, Lord. We ask that you bless this time in your word this morning and ask this in Christ's name. Amen. The message of the book of Hebrews is that Christ is better. If you read the book of Hebrews, that's what it's presenting to the Jewish people, that Christ is better. Christ is better than the angels. Christ is better than the, uh, than the sacrifices. Christ is better than the priesthood. We see Christ being presented in contrast to, or not in contrast, but in supplement to what they had been instructed in the Old Testament, seeing that Christ was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies and pictures and symbols that were evident there. And in Hebrews chapter 2, we see kind of him being brought out as God coming in the flesh. And God coming in the flesh ends, the the idea kind of culminates there in verse number 14. He came in the flesh so that he could experience death, and in experiencing death, he was going to have victory over him that had power over death, that is, the devil. Christ came, he lived on earth, he lived a sinless life, a perfect life, a holy life, so that he could die on a cross, and in dying on the cross, he was going to rise again, and in his death and resurrection, he was going to have victory over Satan's stronghold, over Satan's power. And it was through his victory that we could have victory as well. That's what verse 15 is about, is that those who were in subject to, in bondage to sin and death, could have freedom through Christ. And that's the idea is that it's through Christ that we can have victory over Satan. So we'll look at Satan and his timeline. We're going to go all the way back to the beginning. Where did Satan's come from? I've labeled this in the notes there, Satan's foundation. Satan, we understand, first of all, is a created being. Satan is a created being. Go with me to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28. Kind of a key passage in understanding Satan. This is a a passage that is directed in two parts. We looked at this a little bit in our series on Rightly Dividing the Word when it came to the the first and second coming of Christ, first advent, second advent, first coming, second coming, and saw how some passages in the Bible can refer to two things at the same time. And this is an instance here where... In, in, on its face, it is addressing the king of Tyre, but it goes into a description of Lucifer or Satan and his um, interaction with God after his creation. So there's a dual prophecy here di- di- directed towards this king, heathen king, but also towards Satan as well. So in 28 verse number 15, look down there, the Bible says, Thou wast perfect, this is speaking of, of Satan, Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. 
So we see very clearly in the Bible there that it is described as Satan is a created being. We need to remember this. Satan is not eternal. Again, Satan wants to be God. Satan wants to have God's position. He wants to have God's authority. He wants to have God's worship, um, but he's not. He is a created being. Um, he was created. He has a day. He began. He's not like Christ, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not like God, who is eternal, and not the I am. Satan had a day when he was created. This brings up the question, why did God create Satan? Why did God, why did God, why did God do this? And we can't explain um, all of what God did or, or why God did things. We don't understand all of that. But one point, the thing to point out is that God didn't create Satan. He created Lucifer. He created an angel that, was in, that had great beauty, that had great wisdom, that was in charge of some of the worship in heaven, that had great glory. And it was when Lucifer gave in to the sin of pride that he became Satan. So God didn't create a corrupt being. Satan corrupted himself. And so God didn't create something that was evil. God didn't create corruption. God created Lucifer, an esteemed angel. And he was an esteemed angel until this sin was found in him. It was after his sin that he became an evil fallen angel and became referred to as Satan or the devil. God gave Lucifer the option to worship God or worship self, and Lucifer chose to worship himself. As a created being, he was created by God, and we also see that Satan is a limited creation. We looked at this a little bit last week, but we understand Satan is very powerful. Satan has a lot lot of strength. He has miraculous power. He is much stronger than than we as humans are, being a created angel. But even though he is so powerful, and we see an example of his power in the book of Jude, where Michael the archangel is contending with Satan in regards to the body of Moses, and Michael couldn't defeat Satan on his own. He had to call for the Lord's help, and he said, the Lord rebuke thee. And so that's how strong Satan is that Michael, one of God's mightiest angels described in the Bible, was on the same level in power and strength when it came to Satan. But understand, even though Satan is a powerful enemy, he's still a limited enemy. He is still a limited creation. He is not, as we looked at last week, omniscient. He doesn't know everything. He's not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. He's not omnipresent. That means he's not everywhere at the same time. And he's not eternal because there was a day when he began. It is not a time that he always, always was. Also, being a limited creation, he is under the authority of God. Like all of God's creation, God made him, and because God made him, God has authority over him. Anything that is created, it belongs to the creator. We have laws in our country that that protect this right. Patent laws, copyright laws. It says if you create something, that belongs to you. And it's the same with God. God created everything, and it all belongs to him, including Satan and his power. That is under the authority of God because God is Satan's creator. So how did Satan sin? If if he's under God's authority, how how did he go against God, and how did he sin? Well, this, is a connect, this has a connection to the lesson we taught some, some weeks ago on the idea of the will of God. That yes, God has authority everything over everything. Yes, God can control everything. But that doesn't mean God does control everything that happens. God allows things to happen, allows people to make decisions. And in this instance, we understand that God allowed Satan, Lucifer, to make a decision. Are you going to follow Christ? Or are you going to honor yourself? Are you going to honor God? Or are you going to do, um, serve yourself? He allowed, or he allows, or at least allowed the angels to make the same choice that he allows us to make. Are we going to serve God out of a willing heart, or are we going to go and serve ourselves? We're not given a lot of detail about this other than the fact that it happened. That Satan, yes, he chose to rebel against God, and he went in pride, and he went against God. 
So what does it mean for Satan to be under God's authority? If he can just go and rebel against God and he can do all this evil, how, what does it mean for him to be under God's authority? That means that God's the one that makes the rules. God set the standards. God sets the boundaries on where he can go, where he can't go, what he can do, what he cannot do. God also makes the consequences. Yes, Satan broke God's law, but that means there's going to be consequences. And just because Satan wants to be his own God doesn't mean he gets to avoid the consequences that God has put in place. And that means God also limits his authority and his behavior. So Satan is a limited creation. He is created by God. He's under God's authority. He's not all-powerful, all-knowing, all pre- always present, eternal. He's not any of these things. He's a created being of God. So what about Satan's creation? When did it happen? When was Satan created? Satan was created during the six-day creation week described in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, this is when everything that was made uh, was made. It, was, it took place during the six-day, literal six-day creation described for us in Genesis chapter 1. And Satan would have been created right along with the rest of the angels. Now, in Genesis chapter 1, it is not described for us when the angels were created. But the angels were created most likely on one of the first three days of creation, either day one, day two, or day three. Well, how do we know that? Well, in Job chapter 38, verses 6 and 7, it describes that the angels shouted for joy when the foundation of the earth was laid. The foundation of the earth, that could be a couple different things when it comes to creation week, but very likely refers to when the land was formed on day number three, that the land had a foundation. The earth had a foundation. The dry land appeared. The seas were gathered together. That happened on day number three. And the angels sang when that happened, or they shouted for joy when that happened. So they were already created by that point. So it was day one, day two, or day three, most likely. Um, I believe the most likely day of creation for the angels was day number two. On day number two, we have the idea of the formation of the atmosphere, that God created the atmosphere. He made the uh, division between the waters that were above and the waters um, uh, in the air. He created the atmosphere, which is referred to as the first heaven. And by default, that created the second heaven as well. Because when you separate the first heaven, then you made the second heaven as well. And we know the third heaven, that's where God abides and that's where the angels are. So there's a good chance when he made it the first and second heaven, he created the third heaven on the same day. But again, that's just off of what we can guess in scripture. That's my guess. Um, but we do know he was created during this, um, f- this creation week. Another reason why it could have been on day number two is that day number two was the only day when God did not say it was good. Um, when he said, uh, when he, every day of the, uh, that he created something, God saw that it was good. It didn't say that about day number two. And the angels were the first of God's creation to rebel against him. And so that could have been a reason um, why he did not say it was good on day number two. But again, we don't know for sure. That's just a possibility. But we do know he was created and it took place during the creation week. What was Satan created like? Well, Satan was created good um, because on day number six, God saw all that he made and said it was very good. So Satan had, um, had, was created perfect in his being. He was created without sin. He was created as a good angel. And we see that described in God's creation. We see also that Satan was created as a celestial being. He is described in the book of Ezekiel here as the anointed cherub. We see he was full of wisdom perfect in beauty and ornamented with many precious jewels. A very beautiful angel. There's a lot of of prominence that it seemed like Lucifer had in in heaven. Um, And it could have been the prominence of his position that led him to his pride and his downfall. downfall. We also see that Satan was created with great musical ability. 
Again, Ezekiel chapter 28 describes the workmanship of his tabrets, which is a reference to like a tambourine and the pipes uh, of, of a musical instrument like, like a flute, that Satan was a very musical angel. That was what he was created like. We see in Satan's creation, what was his domain? Where did he have the, the right to be or the right to go? Uh, well, we understand he was in heaven uh, with the rest of the angels, beholding the glory of God and the holiness of God. We also understand from uh, the book of Ezekiel that Satan was in Eden. If you look in Ezekiel 28, we're there, verse number 13. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Um, that Satan had, had a, a realm or a role to play in the Garden of Eden. And again, he was an angel that was involved in protecting the glory of God. Uh, it was a position that he held. So he was in the Garden of Eden as well. We see Satan's position. He is described in Ezekiel as the anointed cherub. This is, this is a reference to a, a place of authority that Satan had. The idea of an anointing carries the idea of being set apart for something, to be, to be chosen and picked specially for some particular task. In the Old Testament, we understand that three offices were anointed. Anybody remember what the three offices were that were anointed in the Old Testament? King was one of them. Priest, yep. And a prophet, yep, prophet, priest, and king. These were special offices where there was an anointing and saying this person's going to be set aside for this particular task. The Bible describes Lucifer as being an anointed cherub, that he was one angel that was chosen by God to be set aside for a particular task. It's very possible that Lucifer was one of the archangels, which was an angel who had great authority of other angels as well. Michael is the only named archangel in the Bible. Um, it is possible or seems likely that Gabriel was an archangel as well, and this would give us, if Lucifer was, three archangels. And we understand when Lucifer uh, left heaven, rebelled against God, he took a third of the angels with him. It may be those that were under his supervision or under his authority that went along with Satan in his rebellion. Cherubs were a type of angel specifically tasked with guarding the glory of God. And as Satan was guarding and protecting the glory that God was getting, he saw the glory, the worship, the, the um, admiration that was given to God, and he began to want that for himself. He became envious of the glory that he was created to protect. And this brings us, after his foundation or his creation, brings us to the second part, which is Satan's fall, that Satan fell from his position he was given. We took some time a few weeks ago to look at Satan's fall from the book of Isaiah. We'll review that briefly, but we're going to look at what Ezekiel says about Satan's fall. We see the first reason that Satan fell, described for us here in Ezekiel 28, was that he became enamored with his own beauty. In Ezekiel 28 verse 12, the Bible says that he was perfect, in the very end of the verse, perfect in beauty. If you look down at verse number 17... This is after it describes that iniquity was found in him. Verse number 17 says, Thy heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. It was his own, uh, it was his own beauty that, that he became enamored with and, and so amazed at himself, uh, focused again on himself instead of focused on God, that, he, that led him to be lifted up in pride. This beauty was a gift from God. Satan didn't do anything to become beautiful. That was what God gave him in his creation. But he became full of himself and he forgot to look at God. He was the most beautiful thing he could see because he was only looking at himself. He didn't get his eyes on God and say, no, that's, that's where glory goes. He got his eyes on himself and said, hey, I need to be getting some of that glory. I mean, look at me. Look at who I am. Look at how great I am. And it was that pride that led Satan to his fall. 
We see that not only was he enamored of his own beauty, Satan was corrupted with his own wisdom. Again, verse number 12 describes his creation. It says in verse number 12, look at the, uh, towards the end of the verse, it says, full of wisdom. Satan was full of wisdom. He was given God's wisdom and the wisdom, wisdom of God, and he was full of that. And then you look down at verse number 17 again, after it says he was, um, he was lifted up because of his beauty, thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. He thought he was so bright that he could ignore God's wisdom. He thought he knew so much he could ignore what God had to say and what God had commanded. Satan knew better than to trust um, he, he knew better than to trust himself. He thought he knew better than God. He knew, he, he knew better. He had God's wisdom. He knew that God was the one who deserved all glory, but he ignored God's wisdom for what he thought and said, you know what? I can put my trust in myself. I can take God's position. His wisdom from God was ignored for his own thoughts and his own ideas. And as we go through this, and this is talking about Satan's history, there's some lessons we can learn here um, when we start to think that I know better than God does. Because that's what Satan did. He said, I know I've got all of God's wisdom, um, but I'm so bright, I've got a better idea. And that got him lifted up in pride and caused him to fall. Um, fall into sin because he thought he knew better than God. So Satan corrupted his wisdom. A point I'd like to make here about Satan is that I have it in your notes there. Satan was a novice. Now, this is an interesting choice of, of, of words here, but there's a connection made in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 3 is the qualifications for a pastor. But there's a warning given in the qualifications of a pastor that he should not be a novice. But then it says something after that, lest he fall into the condemnation of the devil. So what, what, what does that mean? Well, a novice in, in the book of First um, Timothy is specifically referencing a new con, new convert, but someone who's inexperienced, someone who 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 is 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 new to something, and. The warning for the pastor is don't put somebody new to the faith, new to Christianity in this position of prominence because when you take somebody who's new and you put them in a prominent position, you put them in a position where they can fall just like Satan did. And what happened to Satan? He was newly created. He was put into a position of prominence and he became full of himself and he became full of his own wisdom and he ignored God and he fell. And there's a warning given saying, look, if you have somebody who's new to something and you immediately give them prominence, he can fall just like Satan did into pride. And we see there, that's what Satan was. He's the, he's the first novice, that he was lifted up and because he had this position, he thought he was so wonderful, then he took, tried to take God's authority on himself and he fell in, into the temptation of pride. We see his pride described in Isaiah 14 and the five I wills. We looked at these a few weeks ago. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also on the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Satan's sin of pride is what led to his fall. We often get to this point in, in a study on Satan and we have the question, well, when did it happen? When did Satan fall? And again, this isn't something that's described for us in the Bible. We know a couple things about it. We know it took place after the week of creation because during the week of creation, day number six, God looked at everything he made. And he said it was all very good. So Satan hadn't fallen yet at that point because all of God's creation was still good. 
And we know that Satan fell before Adam and Eve had fulfilled God's command to be fruitful and multiply. They hadn't had any children yet. So somewhere between the end of creation and when Adam and Eve were going to have a child, that's when Satan fell and he came to uh, the Garden of Eden and he tempted them and caused them to fall as well. So we don't know the time frame there, but that is when it happened before Adam and Eve had a child, but after the end of the creation week. It probably wasn't too long after creation. Satan was lifted up in pride and he fell and then he wanted to drag man down with him. So then what happened next? Satan was removed from his position of authority in heaven, and he was given temporary authority on earth. He is referred to in the Bible as the God of this world. He is also called the prince and power of the air. We understand that Satan still can have access to heaven. This is seen in the book of Revelation. We'll look at that in a little bit. Also in the book of Job, we've looked at that several times, how Satan went before God, um, came before the Lord. So Satan has dominion here on earth, some, some power that he has. He has the ability to go stand before the Lord in heaven. But Satan was, and he will be cast out of heaven. Uh, he lost his position of authority in heaven. He lost his position of prominence in heaven. When he comes up there, he doesn't come uh, uh, boldly. He comes slinking in before the presence of God when the other angels angels do. In Luke chapter 10 verse number 18, Jesus makes a statement. He says and it says he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Jesus said I saw that happen. I saw Satan being cast uh, down of heaven, his authority being taken away from them. This has kind of got a three-part meaning to this verse. The first is Jesus saw when Satan sinned, he lost his authority, he was stripped of his power in heaven and he was cast out of heaven. Satan, Jesus also saw the defeat of Satan's authority through the ministry of Christians. He's talking to the 70 disciples that he sent out. They came back and said, even the, even the devils are being obedient to us as we're casting them out in thy name. And Jesus is saying, I'm seeing Satan's authority being torn down as you are winning the victory. And Jesus is also referring to the day in the future when Satan's cast out of heaven completely and forever cast into the lake of fire. He will see that ultimately take place. Thirdly, this morning, so we saw his creation. Where did that happen? We saw his fall. And then we, well, I've got the third point here is Satan's failure. Satan's failure. Satan's first victory against God um, when it came to man was in the sin of Adam and Eve. In this first attack on the authority of God, God takes time to describe Satan's impending defeat. Genesis chapter 3, verse number 15. That's a very important verse in the Bible. It's a verse that we should all be familiar with. Genesis 3, 15. Uh, it's got a very fancy name. It's called the Proto-Evangelium. All right, That's a very fancy name. That means the first mention of the gospel. In the Bible, the first time the gospel is mentioned or prophesied is in Genesis 3, verse number 15. And this is in the, um, the judgment that God puts out on Satan in the form of the serpent in Genesis 3, 15. He says there, I I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Satan's defeat is prophesied here in Genesis chapter 3. When Satan goes against God, attacks God's authority in the life of Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve choose to put themselves in God's position, and they rebel against God just like Satan did. They fall into sin just like Satan did, and God pronounces judgment. God offers mercy to Adam and Eve, and that there would be a promised Messiah coming to redeem man's race, but he promises defeat to Satan in the fact that that promised seed would bruise Satan's uh, uh, Satan's head. S Satan would be able to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but that coming seed would bruise the head of Satan. Satan's defeat is, does not take place when he's cast in the lake of fire forever. 
Satan's defeat took place when Jesus rose from the dead after dying on the cross. That's when Jesus, Satan's defeat um, took place. Go back to the book of Hebrews where we, were, where we began. Hebrews chapter 2. Very interesting uh, thing in this chapter I want to point out to you. We already looked at verses 14 and 15 describing how um, it was through his death he would bring about, um, he would have victory over him that had the power of death, that is the devil. We see that defeat described there. But if you go back just a couple verses to verse number 8, verse number 8, notice this. This is talking about God to Christ. Thou hast put all things in subjection where? Under his feet. So yes, Satan was going to bruise his heel, but it was going to happen as under his feet, Jesus was going to crush his head. And victory took place when Jesus died on the cross. He rose again. He stepped out of the grave, stepped right on the head of Satan and, uh, and brought victory there and put all things, God said, put everything under his feet. A fulfillment of the prophecy back in Genesis chapter 3. Right. Clear connection there. You're going to be, bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. And here I put everything under my feet, uh, under your feet, when you have risen from the dead and had victory over the devil. Satan's defeat happened when Jesus died on the cross and rose again. We see because of this, this impending defeat or this impending fail, failure of Satan, that Satan did all he could to prevent Christ from defeating him through the power of the resurrection. He tried all the way back in the Israelite history to corrupt the Jewish line through sin and intermarriage, trying to get God to destroy the people or the people to destroy themselves. We see that he tried to destroy David uh, through Saul. David was going to have a son that would rule in his throne on uh, the power of David. So David got, Satan said, well, I'm going to get rid of David then. And Saul, what did he do? Threw a javelin at him. What, what was going on in Saul's life when he threw a javelin at David? He was under the influence of an evil spirit. An evil spirit prompting him to go kill that guy because that guy is going to be the one that um, has a child eventually who's going to step on our head. So let's get rid of that guy and try to keep that from happening. But it didn't work. He tried to kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem through Herod. To let that, that baby's been born, well, let's go ahead and kill him now before he has the chance to step on our head. He tried to get Jesus to sin and throw off of God's plan through the temptation of Christ. He motivated the death of Christ by the betrayal of Judas. Jesus said unto uh, to Satan that what Satan had come into his heart, and it was Satan who motivated Judas to betray Christ. He tempted Jesus to get off the cross. People on the ground, the, the thieves with him, go ahead and come down, get off of there, because Satan saw his defeat was coming. He tried to seal the tomb. Let's put a seal on it. Let's put some guards in place. Let's keep him in there. Didn't work. He got his head stepped on when Jesus walked out of the tomb. That was Satan's failure. So what is Satan's focus? What's he, what's he busy about now? What is he doing? Right now, Satan is the god of this world. He is orchestrating things in the world to attack the throne of God. He is attacking God's throne through the system of this world, attacking God's authority, attacking, attacking truth, um, and he's, he's, he's behind that. And he's working to get his plan in place to try to overthrow God's authority. He is preparing for his revolt against God that will take place during the Great Tribulation. He's blinding the eyes of the unsaved to try to prevent them from hearing and responding to the gospel. So right now, he is the God of this world. He is also the accuser of the brethren. He corrupts true theology with false teaching. He tries to infiltrate the church with false teachers. He tempts Christians to be disobedient to God. And he wreaks havoc in any life that God allows him to. He wants to bring about um, pain and suffering and discouragement into the life of a believer. 
Micah refers to him as the devourer, one that will just come and, and just destroy for the sake of destruction. We see from the life, life of Job that Satan brings about suffering in the life of a believer. 1 Corinthians describes how God can allow Satan to destroy uh, a sinning Christian. So Satan will do whatever he can to wreak havoc in the life of a believer. And going all the way back to our first lesson, it's a believer who's experiencing victory. If you're moving forward for God, you're a target of the devil. If you're living in defeat, he's not worried about you. But if you're having victory, he's going to go after you and he's going to do what he can to wreak havoc in your life to bring about um, discouragement and uh, destruction if he can. We see that's what he's busy about right now. We see, uh, lastly this morning, Satan's future. Where is he headed? Where are things going to end up for Satan? So we're just going to walk through the timeline of end times events, focusing on where Satan is, what he's doing, and what will happen to him. So at the beginning of the tribulation, Satan and his armies will wage war in the heavens while the Antichrist builds his global reign here on earth. Revelation chapter 12, verse number 7, describes the, the war that takes place in heaven during the first part of the tribulation. And Satan is, is battling against God. And at the end of the three and a half years there, he's cast out of heaven. He is, he's been uh, the, the angel of God are victorious and throw him down to the earth. And on earth, he begins to wreak havoc in the second half of the tribulation period. So this battle is taking place in the first half of the tribulation. This results in a relatively peaceful time on earth while Satan and his armies are at war in heaven. I mentioned to you a few weeks ago that there's an interesting fact in Satan's timeline concerning his title as the accuser of the brethren. I remember, you know, I remember that me teasing that. He's the accuser of the brethren. There's a really interesting fact when it comes to his timeline in that regard. So we won't have time to look there now. But Revelation chapter 12 describes Satan being cast out of heaven at the end of this war, which takes place in the first half of the tribulation. He's cast down to earth. And in verse number 10, it specifically mentions that he was the accuser of the brethren. And he, he accused them night and day before God. And God has cast him out of heaven. So why is this, why is this interesting? Well, what's happening right now in tribulation in, this, in, in the future, but in this point of the story, what's happening in the tribulation? Well, on earth, there's two time periods. There's the first half of the tribulation, kind of relatively peaceful time. The Antichrist gains power. He brings, brings unity to the earth. And then there's the second half of the tribulation where the wrath of God is poured out on earth. Satan wreaks havoc um, on earth. There's destruction and death and turmoil. All the terrible things of the tribulation take place in the second half. What's happening in heaven? Well, in the first half of the tribulation, Satan and his army are fighting in heaven. And Satan is fulfilling his role as the accuser of the brethren. So where are Christians at in this story? Well, before the tribulation happens, where do the Christians go? To heaven. In what, what event? In the rapture. We go to heaven in the rapture. What two things take place in heaven with the Christians during the tribulation? The judgment seat of Christ and the marriage supper of the Lamb. I heard it over here. These two events take place. Judgment seat of Christ, marriage supper of the Lamb in that order. We're judged by Christ and we're, then there's the marriage supper of the Lamb. So you think that first half of the tribulation period, Christians are in heaven going out of the judgment, uh, to judgment seat of Christ. Satan's in heaven functioning as the accuser of the brethren. And when that judgment's over, Satan gets disbarred. He's no longer a prosecuting attorney. He's kicked out of heaven forever. He can't bring any more accusations against the Christians because when the judgment seat is over, that we ha- we're ushered into heaven, we're rewarded for, for our service to God, and Satan's kicked out forever, so you don't get to bring accusation against them anymore. That takes place there in heaven in this time period um, while the judgment seat of Christ takes place. Satan's accused of the brethren, but when that's over, Satan's kicked out for good. 
never again to bring accusation against the brethren. He gets disbarred uh, from his position as a prosecuting attorney in heaven. We see that the time, as the time continues, Satan's kicked out of heaven. He wages war against Israel during the second half of the tribulation. We see then that he is defeated at the Battle of Armageddon. Satan is then bound for a thousand years during the millennial reign of Christ. He is released and he makes one final attempt to overthrow the throne of God. Then he is defeated at the Battle of Gog and Magog. And then we see that Satan is cast forever into the lake of fire. Let's go to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. So those are real quick the events in order as are going to happen to Satan, his future that's coming. He'll do everything he can to avoid it, but he's going to be defeated in the end. Revelation 20, verse number 10. There the Bible says, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan's cast out of heaven. He's cast away from his position as accuser of the brethren, away from where he can bring about temptation and rebellion anymore. He's put in the lake of fire, and he will be judged there forever and ever. That is Satan's coming, coming ultimate defeat. Kind of going back to where we started the lesson this morning. Our enemy is defeated before the battle even begins. We've read the book. We saw the end. We saw how the, the chapter ended. And yes, Satan is ultimately cast in the lake of fire and ultimately defeated. But that's not where his defeat happened. Where did his defeat happen? It happened at the cross. And it was at the cross that Christ died and rose again and gave us the power to live a new life in the power of Christ to have victory. Because we don't have to wait to the end, to Revelation, to after all this other stuff happens to see Satan defeated. Satan's been defeated already. He's defeated the whole time. Yes, he's ultimately um, cast like a fire and put away forever, but he's already been defeated. He's been defeated by Christ, and Christ has given us the power to walk in newness of life, that we don't have to serve sin anymore, that we don't have to be in defeat anymore. As Christians, we know the timeline. We know how the battle ends, and we can go into battle knowing how we can have victory over Satan. So God wants us as Christians to live victorious. So next week, as we get back into our lesson here, we're going to talk about how we as Christians can overcome our enemy. Uh, and I told you already, we'll look, at the, we'll look at the message with the title, Go Ahead and Bring a Gun to a Knife Fight. I think you're going to enjoy that. So make sure you come back next week. That'll conclude our series on understanding our enemy. And we as Christians can live uh, victoriously because we have a defeated foe and we have victory through Christ. Let's